in the Midwest, the missionaries were the white people. They got on stage, told their story, did the PowerPoints, showed the congregation what was going on. They were going to save those people of color. And that was normalized for me wow. from age 10 to, to in college. That, that was the norm. That's what white people do. And black people just serve the community. We do, no, you know, nonprofit work. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Dig New Streams podcast. I'm your host, Dave Capozzi. This week, I welcome my new friend, Eddie Paul Thomas. Eddie is an author, historian, humanitarian, and consultant who has been working at the intersections of mercy ministry, racial reconciliation, human rights, and education for just over two decades. His passion is fueled by his faith and desire to see all of humanity treated with dignity. He's the author of A Broken Seat at the Table, Conversations About Race, Resilience, and Building Bridges, and the Thompson Woods Trail Children's Book Series, whose first book, Why Can't I Just Have It?, debuted at number one on Amazon's bestseller list. And this coming Friday, November 24th, he's releasing When the Light Turns On, which is a children's book filled with fairy tale style stories, each intricately woven with lessons gleaned from the West African diaspora. If you want to keep up with the podcast, please subscribe to whatever platform you're using to listen right now. And you can find a consistent conversation happening over on TikTok if you search for my name, Dave Capozzi, and on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram at Dig New Streams Podcast. Without further ado, my conversation with Eddie Paul Thomas. When I say Christian, what does that mean to you? Um, it means a lot of things, and it's it's incredibly um, nuanced and complex when you are also a historian mm. um, and know what Christianity has meant over the years. Um, and so for me, I actually steer, I personally steer uh, away from that word. I'm not afraid of it, um, but I am a follower of the teacher teachings of Jesus Christ. Um, just understanding, uh, the, the nuances in the Bible, uh, the identity politics that go into it. Um, I, I just, I tend to back away and I serve, you know, hopefully in a way that's pleasing to Christ. That's, that's about it for me. Based on what I have read from your book, mm -hmm. you know, also knowing that you are a black man, the mm -hmm. experience of engaging with the Christian faith is a very different thing than growing up in white evangelicalism, although you have quite a bit of experience within white evangelicalism. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the great, great kind of leading question. So the, my experience has been varied uh, from birth um, mm -hmm. within my family. Um, my parents went to a very traditional Catholic church for, for the first, you know, 16, 17 years of my life. But mm -hmm. Within my neighborhood, I my grandfather was here. My uh, my grandparents were right next door to our house, and then right next to them were my great aunt and uncle. Down the street was my aunt, hmm. and so I went to Catholic church uh, that was very traditional. Very, if you've ever been to a mass, uh, it's all the traditional stuff that you see. However, on my mom's side of uh, the family, if you go to the east side of town, there was a very 
Baptist feel to their Catholic church. So I felt like I was going to an evangelical uh, black church, mm. majority black church, because the feel the songs were different, the feeling, the way that the the uh, priest would would you know give his sermon, completely different. Yeah. Um, and then you'd have my aunt who would watch us every you know few weekends or so, and she went to the the, the all day Baptist church. Like, <laughs> brother, I'm. Uh, <laughs> she's going to hear this and kill me. But we would go. And uh, we, we'd start out at nine o'clock and, and I'd be used to as a kid, you know, you're used to the, the couple of Hail Marys and you're out of there in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and we would go and, and we would have breakfast, go back in, sing, preacher would do his thing. Then we'd break for lunch. And I'm like, whoo, that's, that's <laughs> three hours. What, what are we doing at lunch at noon? OK, OK. So we taking <laughs> off after. No, we're going, going back in. OK, so we would go back in. And, you know, four or five o'clock, we're, we're done. And I'm just, I, you know, 15-year-old me is just sitting there like a, come on. But, yeah, it, it's um, it's fun. And my parents had a very, um, uh, what would you call it, uh, charismatic mm. uh, church. So it wasn't, it was like an hour and a half, but it was, oh, my gosh, you were sweating. You were done. Everybody was <laughs> catching the Holy Ghost. And it, it uh-huh. was so my my experience in you know various arenas is is varied, um, but as I started to look for jobs outside of college, mm. um, that's when as you look for jobs, those are the ones where they started saying, "Hey, come you know come work for us, do this, do that, do that," and and uh, I ended up in majority culture uh, churches. Mm. Okay, there's some similarity. I grew up Pentecostal for the first eleven years in New York City. Those mm. long services, man. Yes. For a kid, that's t- it's tough. It was awful. <laughs> it was bad. I mean, I, I love it now. I, I love the experience now because yeah. there was so much uh, community yeah. there. You know, you, you really got to know people over several hours. So, you sure do. <laughs> um, I, I appreciate it now, but the 15, 16, 17-year-old me was like, come on. Yeah. Let me, let me get to Nintendo something. Yes, yes. I finished reading your book uh, last mm. week. And your book so like seamlessly sort of deals with how racism flows through every aspect of society from like mm. legislation to hiring practices, to real estate, to church a lot, you know, because you're a person of faith, mm-hmm. there's so much of it is about sort of building space um, yeah. within the Christian faith, my guess is for this conversation. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I wonder, you know, with that, you sit, you're a historian, you have all this knowledge about, about the ways in which racism flows in and out of everything. It's part of the water. It's part of the air we breathe. Yeah. You know, you talk also about conversations that you have mm-hmm. with people. Yeah. And one of the things that like really struck me, I think early on in your book, you talk about how there's, there's, it's just not impactful to mm-hmm. have like a conversation discussing institutional racism with someone that's like only interested in debating you. Correct. So when yeah. you're ho- when you're having these conversations, how often does it like sort of move quickly to someone looking to defend themselves, looking to debate? And do you find, you know, that like you talk about in the book, the strategies that you developed and the, the sort of intuitive ways you have uh, start, started to understand where someone's coming from rather than going towards that? Have you found that there are some effective ways to communicate about these things? Yeah. And, and I, I think it's um, 
you know, the, the 48 going on 49 year old version of me is very different than the 20, 25 year old version of me. Um, and, and those conversations early were very difficult. Hmm. Um, we, we didn't have the resources that we do now. Um, you couldn't point them to an article in, on Google, uh, in the nineties, it was okay. Look, let me give you some books. As soon as you say books, forget it. Conversation's over. <laughs> but, uh, you know, p- people would uh, very easily go check something out on Google. Then they'll, you know, let me let me check out this guy on TikTok I, w- I was listening to. And they'll, they'll you know, uh, they'll still uh, stay within their echo chamber. Yeah. But they're at least willing to have, you know, a little bit more conversation now because they can see at least some data supporting what I say. But. I, I think the diff- the biggest difference uh, now for this version of, of Eddie is that I'm much easier able to tell who I'm speaking to mm. um, from the approach. And so if someone is wanting to debate about these things, that I, I don't engage. I, yeah. I genuinely don't engage. I, I'm not rude. I'm not, you know, uh, uh, defensive at all. But for me, it tells me that they're not ready to have the conversation. Yeah. Uh, there's something personal uh, there that they are sticking to, that they have a, a worldview um, in which they haven't uh, been able to step back and see the whole picture. Yeah. And so um, I noticed, you know, as I was younger, I was willing to come and look at things from their, you know, their side of the street. Yeah. But pulling them over just, just, just for a moment to see this from a different perspective was hard. Yeah. So I learned to kind of preserve that energy. Um, Mm. And instead of debating individuals uh, over what's factual, what's true, well, let's, let me give you some resources. Yeah. You spend some time looking at it for yourself and then let's have a conversation about how to improve the situation as opposed to what's what you find factual versus what the data supports actually Mm. supports. You bring up something that I find um, to be a really interesting topic that you're in this position of presenting data about mm-hmm. oppression, about your own oppression. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a wild concept. And I think mm-hmm. about, um, you know, whose responsibility it is to do the data piece, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, I, the, the verse in Isaiah comes to mind, I think, where he just talks about, let's argue this out, you know, we're, let's just fight it out. And that's yeah. me, that's for me to fight out with people mm-hmm. that are like me to like, this is not our experience. Let's talk facts, right? Let's, let's look at data. Cause you're not going to feel this, but what you often are doing and the stories you're telling, mm-hmm. you're telling these impactful stories of experiential racism that frankly I and white bodied individuals do not have. Mm -hmm. And so are you saying that that's more your approach is if someone is in a place where they're ready to have a conversation, it's more going to be from that place of embodiment, wanting empathy uh, more so than data, or will you have both conversations? It just depends on the person's posture. I I can have both conversations and um, I'll be uh, very candid. It depends on the situation uh, the, the individual, um, that, that I'm, I'm dealing with. So, uh, there's no one way in which I approach any conversation about about institutional, uh, (laughs) racism, racism. It's, it's, um, you know, as I, as I watch you on TikTok, there's no one way in which you are approaching people on any given response or topic that you're introducing. So, uh, you have, you have to be agile 
uh, in those yes. conversations. Yeah. And you, I remember one thing really stuck out to me. You say that you don't have one-on-one -on -one conversations in like a private space with people in a home. Mm -hmm. um, would you mind talking a little bit about that? I found that really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So my experience, I, I don't know what, uh, you know, somebody like Ma Malcolm Gladwell or, or whoever would say about the data, but for me and, and my personal experience, uh, as I've, as I started having these conversations, very early on, 25, 26, 27 years old. Hmm. For the last several years, I've learned that when you sit down with someone in their home, they are very comfortable. You're in their space, or even yeah. if they're in your space, um, they feel more comfortable to say whatever's on their mind because there's nothing at risk other than the one-on-one -on -one personal relationship. Um, however, uh, I noticed that when we would meet out uh, in restaurants or a bar or you know, in a park, when we're talking about things that have to do with race, there are a lot of ears, there are mm. a lot of eyes that are, that are around. And so, uh, especially in Indiana and, and Kentucky, which is where the majority of those early conversations were, um, I noticed that individuals would be less apt to jump straight to something overtly racist. Yeah. They would be less apt to say something that uh, is controversial or even um sometimes very disappointingly uh they they would not admit to a truth once i share data or statistics or you know the 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 factual information that would risk their standing mm. um and mm. you know some people refer to it as power yeah. um but for me as i look at it there there's something at risk for a majority of white-bodied individuals, as you call them, or majority culture figures, as I call them, yeah. uh, to admit to uh, st statistics or systemic racism that leads in their favor. Yes. So it's yeah. it's just a tough conversation to have at home because it's it's just very different. The attitude is very different. Yes, I ha I once had this um, online conversation with a gentleman who wanted to know where to get started. He was a, a white fellow. And mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't know why that question triggered this response in me, but it was just like, well, you got to prepare to like, have no idea where you fit in. Right. If you're going to start to heal from or deconstruct whiteness, then it is a very confusing journey because that standing right. thing that you're talking about is, is real. And I think that's why I love one of the things I really love about your book is this like humanizing of all people. Yeah. It's just like um, really trying to understand the motives behind each person or like the, the, the person behind each facade that we have, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. And so you're like, sort of, you talk about exploring what's at the heart of what people are saying when they're trying to figure out what to think about systemic racism. And right. then when you've got that added element of a group of people that does change the dynamic a bit. Yes, sure. absolutely. And I think um, some of the, the um, ways in which I've had these discussions now there's, there's the professional way. Uh, my wife and I have a, a consultancy called elevate one consulting, where we talk about marketing, how to build stronger teams. And, and that includes diversity, equity, inclusion, and now belonging. Yeah. Um, yes. When you have those conversations as a consultant, it's very different. Equally, I uh, work with the National African American Missions Council, NAMAC, yeah. uh, where especially in, in 2020, 
uh, when you had George Floyd and all of our, our uh, white-bodied individuals or, or majority culture brothers and sisters were like, whoa, mm. please help help lead us through this. You know, we we are uh, religious leaders. You know, is 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 this a uh, Marxist thing? Is this a? I mean, everybody had their like, do what is this? How do we deal with this? And yeah. the the hard conversations were the ones where you had to have the truth in front of large audiences. You're sitting on stages and in panels uh, discussing race relations, and you know you've got some religious leaders who say it's still you know it's it's not an issue. It's it's you know it's only an issue because you make it an issue and. Um, you know, there, there were some really tough conversations and, um, you know, as I look at that, the prof- professional side, it's, it's one thing, but the personal side is very different. Um, you know, when I'm able to have a conversation with, with an individual, the first thing I do is shut up. And I <laughs> learned that from professor Morris. And I talk about, uh, one of the most influential people in my life at Purdue university, my freshman, sophomore year. Uh, this man is, you know, he's slamming on podiums and breaking them down the wood. And I'm listening to this white man standing on desk talking about slavery. And he's like genuinely pissed, yeah. like yeah. talking about these stories. And, and he really, you know, um, drilled at home that you have to be willing to shut up sometimes and listen to what people are actually saying. Yeah. Um, and even if you're not there yet, ask follow-up questions. And as you're doing that, you start to um, let go of setting up your defense. Yeah, You know, um, I, mm. I don't need to be defensive when I'm talking about truth. Mm. Um, there, there's nothing to that. There's no advantage for anyone um, if I'm unwilling to listen to the person who's, who's sitting across from me. So um, in doing so, it it allows me to humanize this person to understand, hey, you're supposed to mess up when you're dealing with something you've just woken up to. Mm. You know, I, I would never expect my my two-year-old, um, you know, once she's taken her first steps to be in a sprint competition the next day. Right. There's no way. Right. There's no way. Um, but at the same time, here's the really tough part, Dave. Um, you also deal with uh, Black people in this country, more than, more than 47 million individual souls who all have different experiences and are at different levels when it comes to dealing with uh, institutional racism and people who don't believe them. Yeah. Some are flat out going to tell you where to go. Yeah. They're going to say, you know, get out of here. I I'm, I have no time for you. Yeah. Um, there are those who are going to waffle back and forth. There are going to be those who are willing to have the conversation about yeah. it. Um, so that that's, it's tricky, but at the same time, it's it's all about listening and understanding mm. the the context and timing of of the person that's sitting in front of you. That's so good. The listening piece is something that is potentially the hardest thing to teach. Mm-hmm. That um, curiosity and listening in a way that leads to understanding, not just listening so that you can wait until you're ready to have your argument or your say, yeah. is a really hard thing to teach. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I, I think this ego thing that we have hold on to for so long keeps getting in the way. And I think yes. that's why, you know, you're, you, there's a, another thing you talk about when sort of talking about conversations with people and how they're trying to grasp this idea of systemic or institutional racism. 
is like holding jello i loved that it's a really good image yeah Do you mind just like sharing that a little bit yeah so this this was the earlier eddie the the younger eddie that yeah. I, I was telling about and you know you you have to imagine this this 22 23 year old guy who just got out of college i'm learning stuff that i had no concept of yeah. k through 12 mm. none my my life at that point k through 12 was white men built this you know this country they've invented the light bulb they changed <laughs> all you know everything they they did everything dave and i was <laughs> It's like, wow, white guys are great. We need to step it up, black people. And (laughs) and I get to college and I'm like, whoa, I just learned so much about my own people beyond my own culture. Mm. Um, You know, and so as I as I look at the things that I learned early, I was so eager to fight um, the stereotypes. I, I hated watching a movie and the black guys were always ignorant or mm. the first ones to die mm. or uh they were they were the gangsters or you know just the untrustworthy individuals um and and i i know from my mom and dad's time uh you know in the 50s and 60s they were the the servants you know if they even had a speaking part yeah. um you know and and so as I as I looked at those conversations I was having coming out of college, people were like, what, dude, what are you talking about? Like, okay, I empathize with you, Eddie, and I, I will give money to your ministry or your, you know, your basketball camp, you know, to, to help underserved youths. But I don't understand the larger picture. I support you. And so as I, I looked at it, that was where that jello idea came from. It's like, okay, some of it has some substance, but because I was hitting them with so much information and fighting everything that they had to say, it it was slipping through those fingers. And so Mm. um, I I had to slow down and listen. Yeah. And instead of, you know, instead of telling someone, okay, well go do some research and and now they're less with left with a smorgasbord of, of information. Yeah. I would lead them. Okay. Here's one resource. Take, take a uh, a moment to read this. Let's come back together in a month. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Let's go to the next resource. And so as I slowed down, as I approached my thirties, um, I noticed there was a lot more um, to, to our conversations. Hmm. Um and I was able to to better equip people to not just to understand it, but to learn how to be an ally. And as they became an ally, they also then learned how to be a disruptor mm. um, to say, you know what? I saw this at my school where all the black kids are sitting at one table and all the white kids are sitting at, at other tables. Let's do something to disrupt that. Yeah. Or I see that we're not teaching, you know, Frederick Douglass in, in history why are we not doing that? Like, you know, and they're doing it. They're coming to me and say, Hey, you know, at my school, this happened and that happened. And, and now we're doing that. Or, you know, it, it, it was in a number of arenas, whether oh, it's voting or schools or, or community involvement, um, you know, talking to their pastors specifically at church. Hey, why are all the leaders in your church white? <laughs> There's plenty of black people who, who go here. There's plenty of, you know, it just, 
Oof. The the disruption part uh, came because they understood the information and it was a conversation. It wasn't an argument. They understood it and said, now, how can I, similar to your, your conversation with the other guy, how, how do I move forward now that I have this information? What do I do yes. with it? And so just giving them gentle little steps, things they can do with their children, their own family, and and watching those ripple effects go mm. out and and have greater impact um, has it's reinforced my belief that this is the way to do it. Yeah. To to um, you know try and impact uh, smaller numbers so that they become. Uh, allies and agitators for actual change, not the token change that that we see too often. Yeah, that's good because the 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 typical way of framing agitation or disruption, uh, great words, um, mm-hmm. often comes with confrontation. You know, you got a lot of these call out sort of culture, mm-hmm. doxing people that ultimately is performative in a lot of ways. Doesn't yes. actually shift much in terms of culture or the or people's hearts and minds right yeah and um i think this idea and the the sort of waters that you and i have swam 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 i never know can you tell me what the right one is <laughs> I, i'll go uh, with swam swam <laughs> swam in swam in yeah within you know um i would i would call imperial christianity culture sort mm. of uh, yeah. white evangelicalism is this sort of i'm good i'm a christian I couldn't possibly yeah. be this this hor- horrible thing mm-hmm. that I associate with um, slave masters, with Hitler, with all of the worst figures in history. That's the way that we t- understand that word racism. And I, yeah. you know, there's this one really interesting conversation you have in your book with a woman who's sort of arguing, not arguing, but like confused and, and like pleading with you with like, but I'm good. I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, how is it that I could, I have black friends, you know, um, <laughs> you know, and I love, I've never heard this one before, but you said in the same way that a serial killer can have friends and family that are still alive, mm-hmm. you, a person that has black friends can be racist. Right. Right. It's, it's that thing that keeps coming up of, well, how could we be racist if we had a black president? All mm-hmm. of these attempts to say, no, we're okay. We're, we're better than you say we are. Yeah. And, and breaking down that first wall or that first layer is the hardest part. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I, I would agree wholeheartedly. I think yeah. um, I, I'm going to go with some props here. Uh, Ooh, for, I love props. Um, I think, you know, as I, as I talk about Professor Morrison, uh, and I, I wanted to immortalize him in my book because of how profound he was in my life. Um, after him, um, and and one of our, our projects was to do a uh, interview of one of our elders elders in the family, um, and I got to sit down with my grandfather and learn his story. Mm. And uh, for those who obviously don't know me because I don't have a huge platform, I'm not anybody. Um, my grandfather, Dr. E. Paul Thomas, was one of the first African Americans allowed to practice medicine in the state of Indiana, mm. and so to hear his story, how he wasn't, I, I'm not going to blast the schools right now. Cause that's, it's not necessary, but um, he was not allowed to uh, go to a pre- predominant school, a, a really prominent school in Indiana to study medicine because Negroes were not allowed to do that. So we had to go to Meharry college, which was, which is an amazing uh, HBCU hmm. um, that still exists today. In fact, they just had a, a, uh, a ceremony uh, for doctors who just got their coats. It was, it was really cool. Got to oh, see that cool. online. 
Um, but he went there and came back and had to overcome all of these things to uh, just practice medicine in the state. So as I listened to his story and had a greater foundation for uh, my family, I, I became angry. Uh, if that if that makes any sense, yes, just absolutely. You you study all these things, then you see what your family members actually had to go through, and these are the same family members who carried joy mm. all over the place, singing hymns. Christmas was amazing, you know. All the food. I mean, the, the culture is that of joy, but also understanding that that we're dealing with oppression. Yes. So you deal with that, and then you you study even more of your family history, and I learned of my great grandfather on my mom's side. And Dave, I, it, it smacked me in the nose. Like you ever really just get bopped in the nose? Like, okay. Yeah. It, it paused me. Yeah. My, my great grandfather, uh, John Long was a white man wow. who married a black woman in Kentucky in the 1920s. When it was illegal. When it was illegal. Now, remember, <laughs> loving the Virginia didn't happen until the 60s. Right. Okay? So I think 64, 65, something like that. Yep. This is the 20, 1920s. And so they fought all the odds in Kentucky. Kentucky. <laughs> the birthplace of the KKK. Right. right? I mean, so you think of that and you look at my family and, and how today we're, we've got, I mean, Latino, Asian you know, black, white, it's just everybody in my family. There's a beautiful mixture of people accepting of, of all faiths, uh, of, of any spectrum of LGBTQ, AI plus community. We are love in my family. We're large and we love. Mm. And um, looking at that aspect of my family, it, it, it changed my perspective on a lot of things. Like, okay, I can't hate all white people not that i hated white people <laughs> yeah. but i was skeptical i just you know it just it flips you yeah and so you started thinking okay so how did this happen why do we have black church and asian church and latino church and white church when we're all supposed to be the body mm. and so looking at my family's history going to school and studying studying history it led me to this prop that i'm holding up now which i hope you can see mm. The Negro Slave Bible. Wow. And I had I had, had conversations with pastors. Um, and this is as recent as, you know, 2015, 16, 17, who thought that our churches are were were split up racially because people naturally want to congregate with their own cultures. Yeah. And Sure, there, there's some truth to that. There's a kernel of truth to that, but this was also engineered where, sure. you know, uh, as you look at the the Negro slave Bible, where they literally removed verses, entire books of the Bible for African, well, I, I'll say the African diaspora. Yes. Uh, so that we could only learn a certain part of, of the Bible. That That's that's evil. Yes. That's evil. Yes. Um, and as you looked at, you know, Absalom Jones and those who had had to create uh, the black church uh, as, as an entity, I, I looked at what um, a miracle black people are to, yes. to overcome and continue to, um, you know, pave ways. And I mean, 
have influence on on so many aspects of life that that so many people were just you know without studying the history you have no idea right you just you just have no idea because it's hidden from you it's so oh that's so true i it is a miracle because th- it didn't work removing removing those portions of the bible didn't work there were still there's still the the hebrew bible and the christian scriptures are still fundamentally about liberation and you right. can't remove that <laughs> right can't take it right. out right? right so as much as they wanted to do this work of like saving the enslaved mm-hmm. individuals yeah they they uh they they kind of shot themselves in the foot you know yeah. i i find ah uh, there's so much in that i find that this idea that you have this intentional splitting of the church was inevitable when um you have chattel slavery and then you've got sort of like the the um the generational idea of people constantly being in this lowly position forced mm-hmm. to work the the slave owners you know trying to make them christians and all. It, it doesn't in the end create a solidarity of um you know the where you know when church will call each other brother mm-hmm. sister that that just isn't reality you know right. there there's no um brotherhood in a relationship like that so yeah. eventually the oppressed are going to have to their expression of faith is going to be much more like that of the people who were singing on the banks of babylon on the shores of babylon yeah. right yeah Whereas Absolutely. the Babylonians are are telling them to pray towards, you know, a certain way or not pray at all. People are still going to be like, you know what, we're going to worship this God that may, you may have given us, but it's not the same God. And I think that's what I've experienced. Mm. And what I tell yeah. a lot of people is if it hadn't been for authors like James Cone, there's no way I'd even consider myself a person of faith anymore. Yeah. Because yeah. I was given the gift of connecting at least intellectually and then within my body in some levels, which is so crucial mm-hmm. for white folks to get in the body in these conversations. We have to get into our bodies, um, which is something Resmo Manicam talks about in my grandmother's hands, really great mm-hmm. stuff. Um, yeah. But if book. it hadn't, yeah, so good. If it hadn't been for James Cone and the cross and the lynching tree, God of the oppressed, I don't know that I could say I'm a person of faith. I probably would have done the whole like, I'm an atheist now and I like all the theological things, but mm-hmm. that connection to the lynched Messiah in a yes. way that I didn't connect and yes. white bodied folks throughout, you know, European history have not connected to that person mm-hmm. creates a scenario in which church faith is just a fundamentally different conversation. Yes. Yes. And, I, I would agree with that 100%. For your own faith expression. Mm-hmm. For, for your own experience, your own sort of edification, for your own nourishment, what mm-hmm. does that look like for you? Do you have that kind of solidarity and community or you, do you find yourself oftentimes in spaces where you're having to explain these things? Um, great question. I, I don't think I have to explain it. Um, I, I think that um, God has blessed me in so many different ways that don't make sense. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting... For example, I'm sitting here with trophies and basketballs and and all kinds of things from from my life that I look at and I say, how in the world did I end up? I'm at the time 5'11", 150 nothing. Okay. 
and I'm playing for Purdue University, <laughs> who ends up like one of the top four teams in the nation at that time. Five eleven and and you know soaking wet, 150 pounds. How there are thousands <laughs> of me in the state of Indiana. How, you, you understand what I'm saying? So I do. Um, that was my dream, man. Come yeah, on, I'm it, five exactly, <laughs> exactly. That it's a dream of everybody who's under right. six foot. So the the concepts of me um, having to explain anything doesn't really. Uh, happen for me it's usually um focused around where does your joy come from Mm. like all the things that you deal with um you know regardless of it's you know in in the black community or within you know the nonprofits that i've worked with it's how where does this joy come from Mm. and my joy comes from uh learning more about jesus less about christianity yeah but more so about Jesus and and what he was teaching. Um, and for me, I, I just, I, I don't know. I, everything that I do leans that way. Like there's something in my spirit that says you have to treat people like Jesus would treat them. Even in some of the, the hardest scenarios in my life, you, mm. you have to lean that way. So I don't, it's never a struggle. It's usually a question of where that joy comes from. And then I'm able to have the conversation about, about faith um, that that makes it easier. I love that you talk about joy because that is essential for the work. You cannot do the work without joy. And uh, that joy for me comes with great heartache because there are so many people that I love deeply who have found their way stuck in a religion that has Jesus at the helm, but allows for room for people like any, you name the politician, you name like the red, white, and blue. So that thing is very painful and uh, heartbreaking for me. I've said a few things that, uh, not here, but in in spaces uh, that were seen as controversial at the time. Uh, I would say now in 2023 and fastly approaching 2024, they're not as controversial mm. um, and and in the way that some people are are willing to look at the discussion now. So what I said was controversial is that as I watch Christians leading up to 2016, and I, I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, it, it doesn't matter to me. Yep. Um, when I look at the Black experience, it, the majority of voting is who is going to do the least harm mm. to to me as a black American, I, I'm just being honest. Yes. Who is going to do the least harm? Um, and, you know, as, as I look at the conversation that I was having at that time, that was controversial. I said, you know, you can really tell where someone's faith is by where they pledge, Oof. by where their money is by where their mouth goes when when a subject is is brought uh to the fold. I wasn't trying to be controversial. <laughs> I just I said, you know, I'm listening to this guy talk about Mexicans as rapists, as this, as that, you know, all all the different things that Trump said. And I said, yeah. you voter, I am not talking about you as a person. Yeah. I am talking about what I'm hearing from this guy. How does that sit with you? Yeah. Like, how does that resonate with you when you literally have a Mexican neighbor that you, your kids play soccer, your, you guys hang out and do barbecues every year. How, how does that resonate with you as okay? Mm. 
when you know it's not true. And I, I watched the effects of media. I watched the, the echo chambers that social media started to build for people. And, and it got really tense in some conversations where I, I hadn't raised my voice above what we're doing right now. Dave. Yeah. Um, and so I'll, 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 I'll take you there and put a pin in that and go back to, to something. And then we'll, we'll come back to this, but in the Midwest, um, I wish someone had, had approached me at right. 17, 18, 19 uh, in college and said, hey, Eddie, you really love the Lord. I, I wonder if you'd be interested in being a missionary. Mm. No one did that. <laughs> in the Midwest, Dave, and this is any church that I've ever gone to, the missionaries were the white people wow. that got on stage, told their story, did the PowerPoints, showed the congregation what was going on. They were going to save those people of color. And that was normalized for me wow. from age 10 to, to in college. That that was the norm. That's what white people do. And black people just serve the community. We do no, you know, nonprofit work. Yes. But we don't go anywhere. Wow. Um until 2019, the the uh, missions agency that I was working with asked me to go to this conference called NAMAC, National African American, at the time, National African American Missions Conference. Mm. They've since turned into a council. I go, Dave, and I see a sea of black and brown faces mm. for the first time in my life. And I'm like, what is this? What is it? I'm, I'm 41, 42. And this is the First time I'm wow. seeing black missionaries. Now I've I've done history. I, I've studied <laughs> all the history. I've studied the church in history. Yes. It George Lyle was not a part of that. No. Where I could say, oh my gosh, the first African the the, the first missionary to leave U.S. shores was an African American. Yeah. <laughs> a freed man who went to go serve in Jamaica. George Lyle. No clue. So I'm I'm invested 100 100%. Ugh. And I'm learning so much of my history at 42 that I had no clue about. Mm. And so gosh, what is it? 5 years later, I'm 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 working as the COO for the organization now wow. and helping with operations and helping equip and 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 you know, resource uh, African American mission, missionaries all over the world. Um and and we aren't just a, a novelty, you know. <laughs> We're, we've been doing it for years. Yes. And as I learned this history, now I'm circling back to, to, uh, that time I was able to flip my, my mindset even further by saying, wow, imagine if I was white learning this for the first time, mm. There, your whole worldview learning that, that the enslaved coming from the Western part of Africa, they weren't savages that you were taking and you brought them Jesus now in America. No, Christianity was already in Africa. Right. I had no clue. Right. I had yep. no clue that the Pope was mad that they were enslaving Christians. I had, I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, as, as a historian, I, you know, you're smacking yourself like, why didn't I study this? Why didn't I look it up? But you know, also having that grace for yourself and realizing, holy crap, I've got to have that grace for 
others who have no clue mm. about this mm. helps soften my stance on everything, especially when it comes to Jesus, because your Jesus is going to be different than the guy I know. 100%. And that's and that's okay. But with all things in life, once you know more or know better, you have to do better. You have to expand on who you are, um, expand on your viewpoints. You have to, once you understand that I see Jesus this way, I don't expect you to say, oh, well, yeah, that's that's my Jesus now. But I expect you to listen and, and you know, take some of that in just the same way as I've been listening for years to your Jesus. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope this conversation inspired some new thoughts or questions within you. Until next time, peace, my friends.